Welcome to Brand Events. We have one of our favorite guests, Sean Stanley, coming on for, I think, maybe his fifth appearance. We're going to be talking about something that's very controversial in a lot of places. We're going to be talking about what gender is. Sean, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Thanks so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure to be here. So the thought experiment is this. First, I want you to imagine a duck. So I've got a duck and I've got a bunch of pigeon feathers. I'm going to paste the pigeon feathers onto the duck. But I also have a, a little bit of a, an amplifier that I'm going to place on its beak so that, in fact, I can periodically make it sound like a pigeon. So I'm going to paste these feathers onto the duck. I'm going to strap the device onto its beak. And I'm going to offer this up to you and ask you, do you think this is a pigeon? I think the answer is going to be no, it's not a pigeon. It's a duck that's dressed like a pigeon. Okay, fine. But now we have to take my duck. This is a very fanciful duck. This is an amazing duck. And I'm going to shape it into a human being. And I'm going to put upon it female clothes. And I'm no longer going to use the amplifier that I was using. That didn't work last time. In fact, I'm going to teach it language. I'm going to teach the stuff to speak English. And I'm going to teach it to speak English with a particular accent. And I'm going to make it sound like a woman. And I'm going to elongate its legs with some interesting devices. And I'm going to make it walk like a woman. And so before you, there is this duck, which is dressed like a woman. It sounds like a woman. It's going to look like a woman. Is it a woman? I'm going to say, yes, that's a woman. Because all there is to being a woman and or being a man is simply the behavioral outputs that this creature can produce. And so I want to defend a behaviorist account of gender. So Sean, I take it that on your account, you draw a distinction then between gender and sex, because in the case you give, you've got the duck and then you've got the duck behaving and dressed and looking like a woman. And so you want to say that's both a duck and a woman, right? So you want to say the analogy here is that its sex is duckness and its gender is womanness. So it's still a duck, but it's also a woman. So it's both. There's a distinction between gender and sex. The gender doesn't replace the sex. Yes, I think that is exactly correct. There is a duckness to this woman that we have before us, but that is to be distinguished between its social role as a woman. The way it will be treated in society is as a woman. The way it will be looked at, I think, is as a woman. The only time it's really going to be apparent that this is a duck is when it tries to, to reproduce. It won't be able to reproduce with the human being because it's a duck, but it will produce duck babies, let's say, or duck eggs, I guess. But yes, there, there is that distinction between sex and gender that I wish to establish. So let's talk a bit more about sex then. So. How would you define something as being an adult human female? I think that an adult human female is a human being who's got particular biological features. In this sense, I really am only a philosopher of biology, so I can't speak to the particulars of that. But I suppose typically it's going to be XX chromosomes, standardly uh, uterus, birth canal, etc. Human females are going to have those features. Um, and human males are going to have XY chromosomes, they'll have testicles, they'll standardly give less energy in the reproductive process and so on. 
So there is a biological way to distinguish between the sexes. This won't be universal for all human beings. There are going to be cases which are difficult for us to define, but by and large, that's going to be the way that we're going to distinguish them. So when we talk about then male and female, you want to distinguish that from, let's say, being a man and being a woman. What's your account of what it is to be a woman? So here's where it gets a little bit complicated or perhaps a little bit uncomfortable, but there simply is no account. My view is that being a man or being a woman is something which is culturally relative and time sensitive or time contextual. Being a man of the 21st century is one thing. Being a man of the 18th century is a different thing and so on down the ages. Uh, being a man for you and me, for example, uh, could well involve having long hair and a beard, whereas in the time gone by, it might not have involved those features. So being a man is simply whatever one society recognizes as a man at that point, at that moment. This is something that you'd really have to ask people about. So I think there is no definitive answer. It's an answer which is going to be culturally relative. And for me, culture is one of those things which is not to be defined as some large group of individuals. It really could be even as small as two people could define a culture. So that for any tuple of people, they could potentially form a culture and could potentially therefore have one or another account of what it is to be a man or a woman. So two possible objections. So the one is, I wonder if there's some inherent circularity here. So to be a woman is just to behave in the way that a woman behaves. Now you, you've sort of widened that circle a bit by saying it's to behave in a way that people believe a woman behaves, that society or your culture believes that a woman behaves but there's still the word woman in the definition. So I worry about that circularity. And then the second problem I have is, I wonder whether you would be more than one gender simultaneously if different people have different beliefs about you, given that it's just relative to even two or three people, you say. So what if your different subcultures around you have different beliefs about whether you're a man or a woman? Is your gender indeterminate? So I think that's a really good point. And I do actually want to harken back to some of our previous episodes. And one of them is one in which I suggested that there weren't such things as beliefs. And so I'd like to eviscerate that from our conversation. It's not about whether or not someone believes you to be a woman. I don't know what that is, but it's about whether or not they treat you as a woman. In other words, it's the behavioral output, whatever is going on inside their head. So that, that's a slight correction. I mean, I'm not going to force you to do it, but from my behaviorist account, it's going to be not according to one's beliefs, but according to how others uh, treat you as a consequence. Yes, there is a kind of circularity. And this, I think, goes to the heart of the issue that I think that woman or man is not perhaps a good category for science. And I think that this is part of the problem. I think it's perhaps like a category like knowledge or something. It's very hard to define what is knowledge. Is it justified true belief? Is it reliable belief, is it warranted belief, etc. I don't know. I will go with Willard von Orman Quine and rather suggest that knowledge can fall by the wayside and we can only talk about warranted belief. So that's fine. Insofar as you're uncomfortable with the notion of woman, because perhaps it's defined circularly, I'll happily say, yeah, sure. When we're doing science, it probably isn't a very good term. 
we should rather talk about something else, perhaps something more fine-grained or more easily defined. But then the second point, could one be multiple genders at the same time, say if one slits between multiple different groups? I think the answer is clearly yes. But this, now I will harken back to our discussions about racial identity. I think this is obviously the case when it comes to racial identity. It has happened to me. I have been, within a span of 24 hours, Black, Muslim, and Turkish. And most people want to distinguish these as not the same sort of thing. It's fine. So gender is something also that travels in this way. And it, it is the case that if you're in one group, you can be one gender and you can sit to another group within a short time or a longer time and be another gender depending on their social norms. So yes, I think it's possible to have a non-stable gender. Typically, I think this doesn't really happen. I think that most people around the world would be able to suggest that you and I, for example, are men. But it's conceivable that there could be many subcultures which don't. And yeah, that, that just is going to be the case. So if I recall your view on race was that given that people can have these disagreements and given that one can travel and be misraced, that's reason to be suspicious of the notion of race at all and to rather say that race doesn't exist. And so I wonder if that's the more usual move for you to make is to say, well, all talk of gender is talk of nonsense. The thing doesn't exist. Let's eliminate the category as opposed to saying, no, the category exists. It's not dependent on belief. It's just dependent on the treatment of that person by others. So I think that's a really good point. And I think it, it really digs into the heart of my views about things. I mean, there must be a point at which you guys are going to have to say, Sean, this is radically implausible. But in the comment section of the YouTube video of our discussion on race, th there was somebody who really had a go at me and really wanted to, to get at what I was talking about. And at some point I ended up saying something along the lines of that most of the things that we typically think are real and not real. And their response, which was a criticism, was that my view was nihilistically bleak. And I, I thought I understood it as a criticism, it was a good criticism, but I thought, yeah, that's exactly my view. It is nihilistically bleak. Social constructions in general don't exist, uh, including genders. So yes, races don't exist, genders don't exist, money or monetary value anyway, that doesn't exist. All of these things are unreal. My attempt at suggesting that the way that we can understand gender and the way people want to talk about gender can be understood behaviorally is a way of trying to save a little bit of the way that we normally talk from the nihilistic bleakness. I think it is useful to talk about genders. I think that many people are animated by it for a number of different reasons. So I want to offer a I think a metaphysically safe way of speaking about it. And so that's why I offer up the behavioral account of gender. But it's true that at the end of the day, gender, as far as I'm concerned, is a social construct. And since it is a social construct, it doesn't exist. It's not real. Anyone who thinks they have a gendered identity must be hallucinating, etc. So all the things that I've said about race apply really one-to-one. -one to the things that I may say about gender, but I think perhaps my distaste for race is a bit uh, stronger.
So I have less nice things to say about it. I've got a few more nice things to say about gender, and that's what I'm trying to do here. So it sounds like the kind of position you're adopting is an instrumentalism about gender. So it's useful to talk about gender in certain ways. It can be used in everyday discussion in a way that kind of makes sense and is useful for understanding the world around us and the way that certain genders are treated or act. But there's nothing really there. Is that sort of an accurate description? Yes, I think that is an accurate portrayal of it. Could arguably say the same thing about races, but I'm more reluctant to admit that, to, to concede that point. I think there's truly nothing useful to say about races. But when it comes to gender, I have been convinced that there are some useful things that we can do with that concept. But, you know, as we saw earlier with your question, what is it to be a woman? Isn't this a circular kind of definition? Ultimately, yes, it is. And what is the main problem? How come I can't define it? How come no one can define it? Well, because it's not real. That's the major problem. So I like the distinction between conversation, which is safe for the dinner party versus conversation, which is safe for science. And for me, talking about gender is safe for the dinner party, but it's not safe for science. When we're doing science, it goes away because it's not there. At the dinner party, sure, we can talk about it. You can also talk about races, knowledge, money, and all that. So I'm going to present an objection to you that people present to my objection to social groups generally. So my view is that social phenomena don't exist. I agree with you, social constructions don't exist. But here's kind of the stock standard objection. I think it would apply in this case. And granting that there is usefulness to talking about gender might push you further into the objection. Okay, so... The objection goes, well, there's certain intentional actions that society takes towards certain groups. So let's say it's women, let's say it's people of color, but in this case, women, right? And those intentional actions, we can cash out in terms of the beliefs of the people involved. In your case, you don't want us to talk about beliefs. You want us to talk about the way we treat each other. I'm not sure how one cashes that out, but let's put that aside. Okay, so we treat women in a certain way. And we can cash out those actions in terms of not whether there's really woman or not, but just in terms of the way we treat women and what our general conceptions of women are. And it's loosey-goosey, but good enough. But where the problem comes in is when there's unintended consequences that arise out of those intentional actions and those unintended consequences have patterns. So for example, let's say you implement a rule which says that Men and women, if they are hired, must be paid with parity equally. So in other words, for any given position, if a man is hired and a woman is hired, they must be paid the same salary. Let's just say that rule is implemented. That is an intentional action, right? Now where the unintended consequence comes in is suppose what happens as a result of that is that employers then say, well, then I don't want to hire any woman at all. So what happens is, there's an outcome that results that is not intended, which is that now women are not paid less. They're not paid at all. They're not given jobs at all. Now, if you're trying to explain what is going on there in terms of people's beliefs or the way they treat people, it's very hard to do it without referencing women as an existing category. So you can't explain 
the outcome without referencing women, it, you can't explain it just in terms of people's intentional actions because their intentional actions were not intended for that consequence. So that's a very good point. I think a similar case, for example, could be made with respect to racism. So it could be, for example, that no black people were being hired. In, in your case, no women were being hired. Now, what should we say in the case of race? Well, I think that what should, we should say is that no people of dark skin color were being hired. That's fine. And that's observably true. We can confirm that. In the case of women, what should we say? There were no people who had bodies shaped in a particular sort of way that were being hired. Now, bodies with a particular shape do not require us to say they were women. And surely their DNA were not taken to confirm whether or not they were male or, or female. So we say, okay, well, there were no bodies of that sort being hired, all bodies of another sort being hired. And that's it. We don't have to have recourse to women or femininity or femaleness or whatever in order to explain the phenomena that you picked out. But for the very basic reason that Whenever we're going to see a phenomenon like this, there might be, or well, let's say, I don't know, a weird island where only what you and I call men are being employed in a certain company. Say we go there as anthropologists and we want to understand why. Well, we're going to observe certain things. What are the things that we observe? Well, we observe that only the people who, let's say, look like us are being hired and all the people who seem, for example, to have a large chest or a slimmer waist, they are not being hired. Those are the physical observations we make. That's all we can do. Now we can add on to that and say, okay, well, it's just, e it's a bit inelegant to describe that in all that detail. Let's just say people look like us are men. People look otherwise are women. We add the category, can do that. It's very useful. It doesn't mean that those people are being discriminated against because they are women. They could be discriminated against for any sort of reasons. Perhaps the boss doesn't like people shaped that way or whatever it is. The fact is that there's a social phenomena. We can track it using the body shape or body type. We don't have to refer to gender or to sex in this regard. I, I'm not convinced by that solution for two reasons. So the one is you're trying to explain the phenomenon by explaining the phenomenon, what you mean is describe the phenomenon. So describe that there's people of these bodies in the situation. But by explain, I mean causally explain. So I mean, can you explain the reasons why this is happening? Now, this leads me to the second objection, which is it seems like you've changed your account now. So your original account was not that being a woman is having the set of characteristics. Your account was being a woman is being treated in a certain way, but you're no longer referencing people treating anyone a certain way. And that's the power of the objection is that because it's unintended, no one's intentionally treating anyone that way. It's a really good point. Then you must forgive me for misinterpreting the objection. So, so yeah, if the account originally was uh, a woman is whoever is treated in a particular way, a man is whoever is treated in a different way, 
then yeah, I think you've got just a putative case of people being treated, let's say in this universe as women, they're not employed. Okay. So I totally accept that if that is the account of what it is to be a woman. However, my account is not that being a woman is being treated in a certain way. My account is simply that being a woman versus being a man or whatever is simply a behavioral set of properties arbitrarily defined. It's arbitrarily defined by our culture, by our time, by your likeness, by the way the moon is aligned with Mercury or whatever. There is no essence to womanhood. So if you tell me, you, Jason, being a woman is to be oppressed in a certain way, then I'm going to say, okay, cool. That's woman. And I'm going to underscore that with J. That's Jason's version of what it is to be a woman. I will ask my other friend, what is it to be a woman? And they will offer a different account. I'm sure of it. And I will say, okay, well, that is woman underscore L. So you don't have to agree with the other person and your account woman can certainly totally pick out interesting phenomena that are occurring in the world. So can L's position pick out what is occurring in the world, probably different phenomena. And some definitions probably don't pick out anything interesting at all. That's also fine. So my account isn't that being a woman is being treated in a certain way. It is rather that being a woman is simply to be defined behaviorally. However, it is you do that. So, you know, I get the strength of the objection. Were that my account? However, that isn't my account. I think that account is to be attributed to Sally Hastanger, who, who does suggest that to be a woman is to be treated in roughly speaking, an oppressive way. And, and yeah, sure. According to that account, you've gone, that's what a woman is. You don't have to have a uterus or a penis or whatever to be treated that way. Gay men, for example, could be treated that way or whatever, and they could be thus classified as women. But this is also the case with Franz Fanon's view of what it is to be black is to be oppressed in a certain sort of way. Well, surely Jews are oppressed in certain sorts of ways. Are they black? Yes and no, according to different definitions. And really what I'm saying is that when it's getting to this point, that this is a nitty gritty aspect of trying to figure out what exactly is it, it's just not there. Just talk about the people who are oppressed in the way that you want to talk about. They're not being hired. We can, it's pretty easy to figure out that's happening. You don't have to talk about women or men in that sense. So I take it that when we're defining something like sex, you're going to say there's a set of necessary and sufficient conditions. You can't just make it up as you go along, that you could be incorrect about it, that a whole bunch of objects in the world we can do this for. But when it comes to the social phenomena, you're going to say, look, you're basically in the realm of imagination. So you're talking about pixies and dragons and the way you want to define that stuff like that's totally up to you there's nothing that i'm going to pin you down to and we'll just put a an asterisk next to your definition because we know we're in the realm of unreality anyway so there are some interesting moves on if we think about this as a parallel conversation around race and gender the one account that adam hockman has put forward is this idea that races aren't real, but racialization is real. So racialization can be done by the state, for example, by the people where they come up with a set of rules and they say, the following people who meet this set of rules are this race. 
So you are black if, and then you can go and insert the criteria. Uh, and you'll have a lot of arbitrariness. So we know in apartheid South Africa, for example, you had these race classification boards that would put pencils in your hair or put a Pantone sheet next to you, or you look at the color of your armpit or find out what sports you played and then kind of go, okay, we think you're this. And then you could say, well, actually, I'm not of that. So you could go and appeal it and then you could have your race changed. And you know, you could imagine a similar thing about what it is to be a real man. I think a lot of people grew up with the sense of you're not acting like a real man because you do ballet and you sing and you have sex with men. So you're not a real man, which implies that there's some kind of normative account of what it is to be a man that comes apart from your biology. And so we can make sense of this in some ways. I wonder if you think that when people can change, whether it makes sense to talk about someone who changes sex on the one hand, changes gender on the other, and changes race, whether we can make sense of that and what would be required for them to do it, whether it's mere acts of proclamation in all of them, or whether it would require some kind of physiological change or some kind of behavioral change. That's a really good question. So sex, gender, and race, the big topics, this is not what you should discuss at the dinner party, really. So can someone change their sex? On this, I should think not. I think that sex is something which is biologically fixed. I mean, I really don't know what sort of tools there are for medical intervention. Perhaps there is some sort of medical procedure by which somebody could alter their DNA. It's at least imaginable, but I don't think that is possible at the moment. Uh, perhaps it will be possible in the future. So I don't think that one can easily change their sex, let's say that. For race and gender, yes, yes, I, I think it's possible. However, here I think there are two, uh, there's a distinction that needs to be made. I think that there is a distinction between how it is one feels inside, to use some quite loose terminology, and how it is that other people or the society in which one finds themselves treats that person. So I could feel inside like I am a woman. However, it could also be simultaneously that most people externally treat me like I am a man. So there's a disconnect there. And so it seems to me that it is possible for one to change their identity, their self-identification when it comes to race or gender or whatever else. Relatively independently, let's say, of what other people think, but it, do, it seems that it is more difficult for them to thereby change the perception of other people. So it could be that I identify as a woman, I feel like I am a woman, whatever that is. And yet that society treats me like a man. And it's not going to be easy to get other people to see me as a woman. So. So yeah, I think it is possible to change both of those, both one's sex and gender, but the self-identification I think is different from the social recognition or social identification of others. So I think that's important to distinguish between self-identity versus social identity. Does that follow on race? So can one change one's race through an act of self-proclamation? Do you buy the notion of transracial and maybe you can only buy it in a certain way. If you think that race itself doesn't exist, we're clearly in the realm of the mythical language. But if we buy that language can be there, can one shift one's race? 
Yeah, I think it's as easy as proclaiming that one finds allegiance with Allah or with Yahweh or Jesus or something. People do this all the time, right? They find Jesus behind the counter and they come to, to realize that they're Christian. Oh, good. If you come to realize in a similar sort of way that you're black or white or whatever, then cool, good for you. I don't have that. So I did have any identification with Jesus or Allah being white or black or whatever. But surely it is possible and millions of people do it every day. So yeah, clearly that's possible and clearly it must be possible with respect to, to gender as well. If they think they, they looked under their bed this morning, they realize actually I am a woman. Oh, then yeah, but they are a woman. Cool. But on your position, they're not, right? So their private identity is distinct from their social identity or their private beliefs or views or thoughts or claims about their gender is distinct from what their gender actually is. So, so suppose I claim that I am a woman. What is the content of that claim? It seems different from if other people claim that I'm a woman because they can't be wrong about it, assuming they're being sincere and have a set of criteria which they're applying. It seems like there's different epistemological access here. So am I as right as they are if I believe I'm a woman? It's a really good point. And I think the source of a really powerful objection to my position. Uh, so my position being behaviorist must eschew all of this talk of self-identification or the feeling inside or whatever that I think that, that can't be real. So. So yeah, it is ultimately a mistake. I mean, that was definitely talk for the dinner party. This is now talk for the science. The only way that we ever have access to your apparent self-identification of whatever is when you say out loud, I am a woman or I am Christian or I am black or whatever. And yeah, but then that's part of the behavioral calculus that we can look at. And as us collectively, the third person, us writ large, we will evaluate, is that true? Are you really black? Are you really a woman? As for the dog, you look black, you act black, you sound black, you're black. You look like a woman, you sound like a woman, you walk like a woman, you're a woman. So yeah, it is a social category. It isn't something that one can purely identify with in that sense. I honestly don't quite know how to make sense of that in terms of the strictures of my philosophy, but also just in terms of science generally. I don't know what that would be. So I am trying to take gender away from some of the problems of philosophy of mind, which I think are really troublesome and I don't know how to solve them. But the analogy that I've come up with, I hope it's useful, is in terms of following a script as an actor. You want to get the script as to what to say and how to move and where to be on the stage and so on. And I think that is more or less what many of us have from birth and growing up and being enculturated and so on. We have got a script that we follow mostly unconsciously. And some people may look upon their script and they may realize this is not the script I want to be playing out. And they don't, they cease to do it and they try to play out a different script. And that is the way that I account for people who have this internal feeling or genuinely don't know what it is. But for people who say that they have it, I think they just are unsatisfied with the script they were born with, largely. And so they try to play out another script. 
So I wonder about this. You make mention of someone trying to live out the script. And it seems that if one tries, one could fail or one could succeed. That one's, let's say, treatment of oneself about whether one is a woman or not could come apart from other people's treatment. That what we think of as a social script for being a woman, as you say, could be radically different in different time periods or in different cultures. We can imagine someone who, let's say, believes of themselves as being a certain way, but they're treated totally differently by the rest of society. And I wonder why you think we should privilege a certain one of those views. In other words, the social treatment account is the one that matters as opposed to the internal belief states. Or saying, look, all this talk of gender is just total nonsense. Let's just scrap it. I'm going to disregard all of these accounts equally. And I'm just going to refer to male and female. And then I'm going to describe the behavior. So in other words, if you're very sassy or very aggressive or, I don't know, fabulous, whatever it is we want to sort of attach, we just say that's what's going on. And we're not going to try and have a cluster concept that which says something like to be a woman is to have all these different underlying attributes. We just go, no, there's the attributes and the womanness is bogus. We can definitely talk about you being a biological female and biological females come in all sorts of different behavior ranges. That's a good question. And secular in reverse, just because I really enjoyed the idea of fabulous being a concept to describe someone as. Yeah, I mean, there are many fabulous people that I know, and many of them prefer to be called she and her. Uh, and so they wish to be identified as women. And it's simply part of my script, the total script, but not simply my gender script, but the total script that I've been given to be polite. If you say to me, by the way, my name is Mark, I'm going to be polite and say, okay, Mark, it's nice to meet you. And if you say that you'd prefer to be referred to as he and him, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I think that metaphysically, or if we're really doing hardcore science, yeah, sure. It probably is better to just throw these gender concepts away and talk about behavior. That is anyway, what we have to do when we do science. I mean, you can't observe the gender of someone, but you can observe what it is that person does or that group of people do. So that just comes naturally. So to answer in reverse, it's just a matter of etiquette that we refer to people with their, their preferred gendered identity. I think, why should we privilege the one over the other, the social versus the personal? Partly, and th this might simply be like a radical deficiency in my philosophy. It's partly because I simply don't recognize the personal. I don't know how to do that in terms of my radical scientism. So if that's a really important objection, then you found like, a, I can't recall if you watched the hobbits where Smaug has a scale loose and they shoot the arrow into the scale, then that's what that represents. That's a deficiency from my philosophy. But why else? I think really because that's what matters more socially, right? And nobody really lives in, let's say their hovel and thinks to themselves while circulating the room, oh, I am this, I am the other, I am that, and really internalizes this and is satisfied. People go out into the world. They interact with other people. They are influenced by other people. They see themselves through other people's eyes, etc., etc. Gender and race is one of those things that 
matters to people socially because of how it affects them. It's not only and not really mainly about how they see themselves personally. It's much more about how they see themselves through the eyes of other people, perhaps even people they think are very important, their idols and so on. So that is why I would suggest privileging the social dimension of this. Because of course, and this I shall now relate back to our, I think our first episode on philosophy of language in terms of meaning and learning words and learning the meaning of words. We learn words first and foremost by other people influencing us. We don't pick up that red is that color or blue is that color. We learned by observing how other people react to us and how we say things. This is the same with pain. This is the same with gender. This is the same with race. There was a really sad book, interesting book. I wish I recalled the author's name. I will try to find it and comment on it in the comment section. But this person was basically describing many people's experiences of race growing up in South Africa. And one of them was a child and the woman was letting the child go play on the beaches during a party in South Africa. And she was migrating to the white part of the beach, not the black part of the beach. And, and the woman said, no, come back. You're not allowed to be there. And she said, but mom, I'm wearing a white jumper. Surely it's okay if I'm on the white part of the beach. She hadn't learned the meaning of the word white and black in the racial context. And this is, of course, how we learn about gender and what it is to be gendered one way or the other, what it is to be a woman or a man or whatever. So, so yes, that is why I privilege the social or public aspects of this rather than the private aspect, because it is socially inculcated in, into us. We later learn to adopt one or another script, one or another meaning as if it were personal, but it's not personal from the get-go. So I want to take Mark's arrow and just jam it in a bit, a bit deeper. So my PhD supervisor, who I think you studied under as well, Mark Leon, he has this very nice counterexample to behavioral theories of mind. So behavioral theories of mind say that you don't actually have mental states. You just got behaviors and we understand your mental states. There's nothing more to understand your mental states than to understand your behavior. So what is it to be in pain? Well, it's to act in a certain way. It's to say, ouch, and to run around and to say, stop that, remove that arrow from my chest. Okay. So now the problem with behavioral accounts of the mind is that they struggle with certain kinds of cases like the Spartan case. So the Spartan is this person who is in pain. You shoot him with the arrow and he's in pain, but he's a Spartan and he's strong and he's macho and he doesn't react. So he doesn't pull that arrow out. He doesn't even give on that there's an arrow sticking out of his back. And the problem with the behaviorist is that he cannot account for any distinction between the Spartan with an arrow in his back and a Spartan without an arrow in his back because they behave identically. Or it's like the, the Rambo type figure who gets shot three times and he carries on fighting. And then at the end of the fight, he lifts his jacket and he's got a wound in his stomach. He goes, oh, and he crumples. And it's only at that point, according to the account, that he experiences pain, right? Now let's return to gender. 
So in the gender case, you can't give a distinction. You can't explain the difference between someone who is acting like a woman and someone who is a woman. So suppose that I grow up with a female body, right? And I'm expected by everyone to behave in a certain way. And there's social stigma against behaving like a man. But inside, I feel like a man. So I pretend to be a woman. I go about my everyday life. I do the things that other women do that I perceive to be what women should do. And, but my, and at the end of the day, I take off all these awful women's clothes and, and I put on male clothes, clothes that usually dress male bodies. And I feel much more comfortable on your account. When I'm in society, there, there is literally no difference between me and someone who identifies as a woman and behaves like a woman and internally feels like a woman versus someone who is pretending. Just like in the Spartan case, there is literally no difference. And the problem for your account is it seems like that difference is important. And you're saying, yes, there are reasons why we should make the social at the top of our hierarchy of concerns, why we should prioritize the social. But I want to just throw one more example at you that suggests otherwise, if the Spartan hasn't convinced you. So someone, I'm assuming that sexual orientation, you're going to have a similar account. So what does it mean to be a gay man? Well, it means to have sex with other other men, a man having sex with other men. That's what it means. But you can't account for someone who's closeted, right? You can't account for someone who never has sex with other men, but inside they desperately want to. That would make no sense in your account, right? It would just, it would be senseless. But surely if your account can't account for what it means to be closeted, if your account can't account for the private experience, but another account can, Surely we should accept the other account over yours because that account is explaining more features of the world. Absolutely fantastic objection. You not only dug the arrow a little bit deeper, but twice because I've dedicated my PhD thesis to Professor Mark Leon, who I know has been on your show before. I know he would recoil at so many of the things that I've said. So, so yeah, it's really stinging me at the moment. <laughs> so it's a good job. So yeah, it is a good example. There, there are two ways out that I see for myself. And the one I think is probably actually quite good, but it's going to sound a little bit cheap. And the other one is just going to sound a bit cheap, but I think it's also quite good. So, so the one is to say, look, I know that I've said I'm defending a behavioral account and I want to be, but I also want to include in that behavioral dispositions. And so I think that this is going to account for the closeted person. I think this is going to account for the Spartan. And I think this is going to account for the, the transgendered person, because given the right circumstances, they would be disposed to feel pain, to put on the relevant clothing, to have sex with men. So, so that's the cheap way, but that is, I think, honestly, the way that I do account for this. These dispositions, I think are built into us, I think they're grown into us or learnt really by observing others. But yet they are there. And yeah, that is what is going to account for the distinction between the closeted gay person, the Spartan versus the non-Spartan, the transgendered versus the cisgendered person. The slightly different way to put it is that 
I am a behaviorist. I am an instrumentalist because I am unconvinced by any of the other accounts of the mind. I'm unconvinced by any of the other accounts of what it is to feel pain, what it is to feel an internal sense of one's gender or one's sexual desires or whatever. Nobody has, I think, made it clear what that means. We could say it's identical to brain state. That doesn't work. Could say it's identical to a certain functional state. That doesn't work. These are so non-reductive states. That doesn't work either. So in light of that, what I hope to be offering is, even if not the complete account, then a serviceable account that can help us describe enough of what we are interested in until the philosophers of mind get consensus on what is the relation between the mind and the body. So those are my two responses. There are dispositions, which I think can be accommodated by behaviorists, but there also are other problems that general philosophy of mind faces that I think instrumentalism works its way around. So in a lot of the reporting around monkeypox, they've identified three groups of individuals who are most likely to get monkeypox. It's bisexual men, gay men, and men who have sex with men. So the claim is that these are three distinct categories. Now, I wonder, Jason's given the one version, which is the person who's closeted. I wonder about the other. So the man who has sex with men who says, but I'm not gay. And under the writer's positions, I wouldn't be having sex with men. It's just that men are much easier to take to bed than women, and that's why I practically do it. But I'm not actually disposed to have sex with men. I'm disposed to have sex with women. But let's assume that they never have sex with women. They only ever have sex with men, but they claim not to be gay. Now, it seems like the dispositions and the behavior come apart, and I think you have to pick which lane you're in. Are you a dispositionist who doesn't really care about behavior, or do you say, no, we judge you based on your actions? It's a good point, but I don't think it's fatal to my position because I think that here is simply a clear point where the categories that we've been using, so for example, gay man or man who has sex with other men, these categories just don't really do the work that we need to do the empirical science. There clearly are a group of men, however many people there are, I don't know, who are not gay, but they have relations with other men. And they clearly are a group of men who are gay and that's it. And they are disposed to monkeypox in different ways. I don't know the right size behind that, but yeah, that's it. We've easily distinguished between these two groups of men that I can't come up with a good way of saying, oh, well, they're straight or they're not straight. It just simply says that the label straight, gay or bisexual isn't really a good enough label of this kind of science that you want to be doing, which I think is fine, but it's good enough for other, other discussions, discussions we all have at our dinner party. It's just not good enough for when we want to do science. So I, so again, I think that this actually came up with your discussion, I believe with Kathleen Starr and her book, very good book, Material Girls, as she, I believe, and I, I mean, I would love it if she got in contact with me about this. But I believe that she's in love with words. She is very attached to the word woman and girl and wants these to mean certain things. And because I think that words simply don't have meanings from our first episode, I simply don't care. Girl, woman can mean whatever we want it to mean for whatever context we're interested in. And I think there is one of the major distinctions that I have with other people 
on the conservative or the more liberal side of things with respect to these notions as women, straight or gay or whatever. I am simply comfortable accepting that in some contexts they will mean one thing, in another context they will mean another. And that's all there is to it. There's no big problem. Other people see a problem and I think it's because this is very disparaging, but they are in love with words and I am not. The dispositional refinement is clever. Uh, it's clever and it's a standard move made by behaviorists within philosophy of mind. It does have its own issues, but I just want to point out a virtue of it. So the virtue would be that you can now kind of make sense of someone who says, inside, I really am a woman or inside, I really am a man. Well, what does that mean? What it means is you have the disposition to behave in certain ways. And someone who isn't a man inside doesn't have that disposition. So that would be one way of cashing out someone's internal experience, although I know you don't buy into that internal experience existing, but it'd be at least a way of acknowledging that there is something internal to them that matters. I, I just, one more push against dispositionalism along the lines of Marx's push. Suppose someone has the disposition to act in a certain way, but never acts in that way. So I have the disposition to, to dress up in women's clothes. I have the disposition to behave in certain ways that society generally deems women to behave, but I never do it. I resist the urge all my life. I never do it. Am I then a woman? Does the disposition win, even though the behavior never occurs? Well, it's a good point that I actually don't quite know how to answer correctly. So my, the answer that I've come up with is like a glass. That, that never shatters, it never breaks. So maybe it's preserved in some underground site, whatever, and it just hasn't broken ever. We normally think the glass has the disposition to break if it's struck by a hard object. Uh, I really don't know where to go with this one. I would want to, I would want us to investigate how it is we attribute dispositions to either other objects or to people. What is the process of doing it? And I would imagine it must be, I mean, the empiricist in me says it must be because we've observed them doing such and such in the relevant circumstances. So if you take me out and give me too many beers, then perhaps I will sing along to certain songs, even though I wouldn't do that if I was sober. You now know Sean's got the disposition to sing when he's inebriated, but I'm not sure as you would be able easily to describe that disposition to me were you not to have that prior knowledge. And so in this case, I sort of feel like it's one of these philosophers fantasies where we sort of have all the knowledge without any of the work that's needed to get all the knowledge. And in your case, I'm not sure how to address your example, but maybe the response is, I'm not sure that your example will actually ever occur because I think that whenever we're going to attribute dispositions, it's going to be because we have some prior or background knowledge.